turn to the book of 1 Kings. And now we are turning from the New Testament, where we were in 1 Peter, to the Old. Turning from an epistle where we were looking at three, four, five verses to historical narrative, where we'll be looking at a chapter at a time. And this week, it's 53 verses. So rather than read the whole passage, what I'm going to do is read sections that are relevant as we go through to point things out so that we can remember what it is that we're looking at. And I put some sections of it in the text. To put the whole text in the bulletin was more than two pages. So you're going to have to bring your own Bibles with you or borrow one. We've got plenty at front. And I would encourage you, as I've said uh, in Sunday school, to do some homework, and that is figure that each week we're going to be doing about a chapter so you can read ahead during the week around family devotions or dinner, and so you can get a preview of where we're going with this. And I, I trust that this will be a blessing to you. As I've looked through, it's, it's relatively unusual. I, I looked before I start a new series on the Internet just to see what other preachers have done with a book, just to see how they divide it up and what they do. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't find anyone that had done a series through First or Second Kings. So I'm in uncharted territory... Maybe they know something better than I do, but uh, I hope that you will be as fascinated as I will be with Israel and Judah and wars and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and the miracles of what the Lord has done. And so I hope especially that the young ones among us will uh, be excited and understand about how God uses history in showing us our duty and what he has done for us. So let us now, before we go to the text, let us go to the Lord and seek his blessing and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us these books. Lord, we ask that you would focus our attention upon what you would have us to see. That you would show us, even in the midst of this ancient history, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, your grace, and your provision for your people. We ask, Lord, that you would impress upon us that we are your people and the provision that you show here in the history of Israel is a lesson for us, is an encouragement to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's about this time of the year and it reaches a highlight in the September and the October before elections happen. And that is that there is a heightening in the nervousness of Christians, especially when it's a presidential election season, especially when it's what seems to be a critical presidential election season. And we can become, at times in the church, very nervous We watch returns from various states and primaries. We look to see who's in the race, who's out of the race, what will happen, what people are saying, what issues come to the forefront. And everything that is done seems to be highlighted to us. And at the same time, although we're conscious of it in prayer that the Lord is sovereign, God's sovereignty seems to sort of move into the background. And the events of the day seem to take 
primary concern. It's not surprising. It's not even, I think, inherently sinful because as we're around and we see circumstances, we could be focused upon that and we need the Spirit to point us to the Lord who is the true King and Sovereign. We have difficulty sometimes thinking about whether God is really behind these events, whether He's really involved in national politics or in circumstances. But you see, it happens at other times too in our lives. It can happen in the grind of daily life as we whisk kids off to activities. We get baseball bats and bags shoved into a bag so that we can run off between work and a baseball game and a meal and bedtime and showers. Not necessarily in that order. But you see, we can lose track of how God is involved even in those little events as well. And one of the things that the Scriptures do for us, especially the Old Testament scriptures, is they show us the power of God and his hidden hand in the events of the world. We're going to be looking at such events here in the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings opens up in a picture and an image of a time of crisis, the time of the death of David. When the king, the king after God's own heart, is about to pass from the scene, what will happen? I imagine if you were an Israelite, you would wonder. David's ruled us so long, nearly 40 years. It's hard to think of what life would be like without him. But you see, 1 Kings doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It comes to us from the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And so we need to recount to ourselves all of those things that have happened. The rule of Saul, and how Saul was taken from his kingship by the Lord for his sin, and how David was put in his place, and how David waged war against the Canaanites and the Philistines, and how he sought to obtain peace, the peace that God would give to him. And then there's, of course, that famous passage in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord promises to build David a house. It's when David finally thinks he can do something for God, and he's ready to build him a temple. And God says to him, you want to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. And so that's where our scene opens up as the Lord begins construction of this house that will culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a time of difficulty in the kingdom. And the first thing that we're going to see is what troubles the kingdom. Because there is something rotten in the state of Judah and Israel. There is something troubling the kingdom. We'll see what troubles the kingdom. And then after that, we'll look at what preserves the kingdom. What preserves the kingdom? What means God uses? And then finally, we'll look and see what happens in the kingdom as a result of that preservation. So we'll look first at the trouble that is in the kingdom, and then what preserves the kingdom, and then finally, what is in the kingdom. We look at verse 1. The first thing that we see that troubles the kingdom is actually David. The first thing that troubles God's kingdom is an absent king. A king that is absent. 
Now, it seems difficult to think about this, that David is part of the problem, but he is. There's trouble in the kingdom, and David is a part of it. For you see, David is old and advanced in years. Our chronicler here is telling us that David is not long for this world. He's on a short-term ticket. The language is very vivid. It says that many days have come upon David. His years are advancing. And as a result, it seems that the glory that was King David has passed. You remember David, a youthful, energetic, decisive man. He was active, perhaps even to a fault. Some of David's greatest sins are of David doing something when he shouldn't have. He sees Bathsheba and he goes and gets her. He looks out over his kingdom and he decides to number them. David was not a passive man. He was not a couch potato. But now here we see him and he's an old man. And he can't even stay warm. They cover him up with clothes, blankets. They pile up. Perhaps you have an image of when someone in your family is sick and they put on clothes and then they put on a sweater and then they pull up a blanket and then there's a second blanket and they huddle and they just can't get warm. Maybe that's happened to you. Happens very often where I come from in Buffalo. But you see, David can't get warm at all. It's a proof to us that even the greatest servants of God lose their power. Because you see, David is not God. And the very fact that his life is coming to a close convinces not only him, but everyone else of that. Maybe you are experiencing that today. You can't run as quick down the basketball court as you used to. You can't lift as much mulch as you could a few years ago. Maybe you can't remember dates and times as well as you used to be able to. You don't need to be 60 or 70 for these things to be true of you. They're true of me at 38. It's one of the facts of life that we lose power. And you see, David is an absent king. He is cold. He is lonely. He is sitting in his chamber. And his servants know that the situation is precarious. Because you see, they go out and they try and find him a young maiden to help keep him warm. To be with him. To clothe him. To sit next to him so that he's warm. And they know how important it is because look at what they do. They go throughout the whole kingdom to find the right young lady. They know this is important. And so David sits quietly. We can almost think waiting for his death. But there's another problem in the kingdom. It's not just that the king is absent, but there is also an ambitious pretender. Look at verse 5. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. You see, 
Our historian now moves from David, the lonely, cold king, to Adonijah, the active, handsome young man. Everything that David is not, Adonijah is. He's active. He's making things happen. He's speaking to people. He's loved by the people. He has a beautiful face, not a wrinkled face. He doesn't have to worry about staying warm. He's on the go. He's everything that David is not now. We might even say that he has it all. He'd be the perfect candidate for our election now. He's got it all. He's got ambition. I will be king. He has style. He goes around with chariots, horses, and men running in front of him. He has image. He looks good on camera. He's a handsome man. So handsome that they compare him to the handsome man of the previous generation. Absent. He also has position. He's not just a pretty face or a talking head. He knows how to get in with the military leaders. Joab trusts him. He knows how to get in with the religious establishment. The priest helps him. Adonijah, or excuse me, Abiathar. He is a mover and a shaker. He might be, we say, the perfect successor to David to take Israel that next step to glory. To do what God would have her to do. But you see, there's only one problem. Our historian here gives us a picture that Adonijah isn't all that he's cracked up to be. There's a seemingly positive picture that he has given to us, but in reality, it's a negative picture. You see, Adonijah puts himself forward. He exalts himself the Hebrew literally is, he picked himself up and put him up on a pedestal so that everyone else could see him. You see, Adonijah is his own best friend. He's his own best press secretary. There's also the sense in which Adonijah is identified with Absalom. You remember Absalom? He was the one who betrayed David, who started a revolt, who tried to take God's anointed king from office for his own pleasure and for his own power. Don't think it's a coincidence that our historian here says that he is handsome as Absalom was. He's pointing out to us an identification. And don't think that the fact that he's handsome is simply a resume point that he could be on GQ. Be uh, uh, see, yeah, GQ. Because there are men who are described as leaders as being handsome. You may remember some of them. Absalom. Saul. How about David's oldest brother, Eliab? You know what they have in common? They're all called handsome. They're all really bad leaders. They're all people, they're all men who people think he should be the leader. And at the same time, they're men whom God says, they're not the leader. This is who Adonijah is identified with. He also has another handicap that he's operating under. It's that David never bothered to discipline. You notice what verse 6 says? His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He is the prototypical spoiled child. David doesn't want 
to hurt his feelings. You see, it's not that David is too busy, it's that he doesn't want to hurt Adonijah's feelings. And that makes Adonijah like another man of the Old Testament, Amnon. You may remember Amnon. He was the one that Absalom wanted to kill for abusing his sister. And the description of Amnon is almost exactly the same. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 13, 21, the text says the exact same thing, that David didn't want to offend Amnon, and so therefore he didn't correct him. You start to get a picture of who Absalom, or excuse me, who Adonijah is. The other thing that we need to know about this pretender is, is that he cuts against the key requirement for kingdom work. You see, the key qualifications for kingdom work, as found in 1 Timothy 3 and in the book of Titus, are character, not skills. Do you notice that as it talks about deacons and elders? It doesn't say the ones who could take the best notes, the ones who are the most efficient, the ones who can earn the most money. The ones who can even make the most friends. It says, no, men who are of good, sound character. And so, Adonijah has everything he doesn't need and nothing that he needs. And so what he does is, he goes out and he starts his campaign for king. And what he does in verse 9 is he goes out and he sacrifices. He sacrifices sheep and oxen. And he does this as a way of gaining favor. This is a rubber chicken dinner where he's trying to raise the maximum amount of dollars for his campaign. And he's very shrewd about who he invites. Do you see who he invites? He invites all the king's sons, except Solomon. And he invites all of the bigwigs and the leaders of the day, not just his henchmen, but he invites all of the royal officials of Judah, except Nathan and Benaniah. You see, or the mighty men. You see, he wants to make sure his party is solid. And he wants to wedge out Solomon and his people. And so this is a critical moment in the kingdom. This is like Moses dying and Joshua taking over. This is like Martin Luther deciding whether or not to say, here I stand. This is a critical moment in the history of the church. Do you feel like that sometimes in your life? Maybe it's the birth of a child. Maybe it's someone going off to college. Maybe it's something like the construction of a new building. And so there's much activity and there's many things to do and we're trying to put everything in place and our thoughts wander from what God is doing. That's a real danger. But you see... At this time, God is not inactive. He is preserving the kingdom. And he is using people to do this. He is acting through faithful servants. We're going to see what preserves the kingdom. And the first thing that preserves the kingdom are the faithful servants. And so Nathan comes up to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and he says, Have you not heard that Adonijah has become king and that David doesn't even know it? And so Nathan and Bathsheba come together and they plan. Now therefore, come, let me give you advice, says Nathan, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. 
Now, I want you to notice what Nathan doesn't do. He doesn't sit down in a chair and say, well, I guess I have to wait on God and see what happens. If Adonijah is not to be king, probably a boulder will fall on him. Come on, God. Lightning bolt. Quick save. No. Adonijah is active, and so Nathan is active. Nathan is acting in accordance with the will of God, with the plan of God, because he knows, we find out in just a little bit, that David has made an oath that Solomon will be his successor. And Nathan also knows that God has promised David that his kingdom will be eternal and that he will have a son to sit on his throne. And he knows that Adonijah is not this man. Because David has promised, and you can already see that what Adonijah is doing is, he is pitting parts of Judah against parts of Israel. He goes to sacrifice at the border of Judah and Benjamin. He's not concerned with the other tribes. He's trying to rally the princes, the royal officials of Judah. And Nathan knows that Israel is to be one kingdom, twelve tribes that with one king. And Adonijah is playing power politics. He doesn't care about God's promise. He knows where his support lies. He knows where his red states are. And so he's going after them. And so Nathan is motivated by loyalty to David and God. He says to Bathsheba, Our Lord David doesn't know. And so he acts. And Bathsheba listens. And there's a very interesting little pun on words here in the Hebrew. You may wonder why Adonijah is described as the son of Haggith, other than that it's an interesting fact. The Hebrew word for Haggith actually means feast or feasting. The name Bathsheba means daughter of an oath. And so here we have the son of the feast against the daughter of the oath. These details are not coincidental. You see, Bathsheba knows the oath that David has made. Knows even more the oath that God has sworn to David. And so she goes to David, perhaps at the risk of her own life. And she goes in a proper, submissive manner. She doesn't barge in and throw coffee pots at David. And say, you'll do this now, you made me a promise. I've got it in paper. No, she comes up and she says, My Lord. And she bows down before him. She's respectful. And again, we see this picture of David. It's very interesting. In verse 16, he says, What do you desire? In Hebrew, that's actually only two syllables. You can almost picture David. He's old. <coughs> He's coughing. He doesn't know what to say. She walks in and he says, Malak! What do you want? He can't even get the words out. He is prototypically out of gas. And so she comes up to this man who is, seems that he couldn't do anything to help her. He's weak, he's tired, he can't even keep himself warm. And she says, My Lord, I need to remind you of the oath that you have sworn. This oath that people know about, that Solomon was to reign after you. 
Now, it should be obvious that people knew Solomon was David's appointed heir because who's the only guy that Adonijah doesn't invite to the feast? He invites all the other sons. You see, Adonijah is the fourth born. But son number one, son number two, and son number three are all dead. Two of them we read about in the scriptures. They're Amnon and Absalom. And so son number four stands up and he says, I'm the oldest, so I should be king. It doesn't matter what David said five years ago, ten years ago. I should be king. And so Bathsheba comes up and she says, you remember that oath that you swore. And she says, people know this. You don't know what's going on, but if you're not active, then we'll be guilty. The eyes of all Israel, verse 20, are on you, David. They're waiting to see what you're going to do. What are you going to do? Now, there's an immediate lesson there for us. David is being reminded by a godly wife that he cannot abdicate his duty. Husbands, when your wives remind you not to abdicate your duty in child-rearing, you must listen to them. The eyes of all Israel are upon you. You see, it is the part of a godly, submissive wife to come to you in a proper manner and to say, you're not doing what's right. The eyes of all Israel are on you. Don't you remember? Do what's right. And so Bathsheba comes up and reminds David of this. And then Nathan comes up to seal the deal. He provides the, the biblical second witness. He comes in and he's critical at a critical time. You see, he has come up with a plan, and now he is acting on it. While she's still speaking, Nathan comes in, and he says, My lord, the king, have you said Ed and I just shall reign after me? Did I miss that press release? Because you know he's out there playing king. Are you even aware of what's going on? You see what Nathan's doing? Nathan is not afraid of acting at the critical time. He's the same man who earlier came up to David in the midst of his youth with his hand on his sword and he said, Thou art the man, David. You are the one that killed the sheep. And so here he's not afraid either. He's a man of action. There's a critical time in the kingdom of God and God brings up a critical man to meet that critical time. You know, there's an illustration of this in our own history. In the war between the states, civil war slash northern aggression, depending on where you're from, at the Battle of Gettysburg, there was a man with a big handlebar mustache named Chamberlain. And he got up on a hill called Little Round Top. And he saw that the Confederate army was about to overrun it. And he acted immediately. And he gathered up troops and he defended that top of that hill against the Confederate Army. It was a critical time. If he had not acted, not just acting, but acting critically in the right way, that entire battle could have gone differently. That entire war could have gone differently. All of the history of the United States could have gone differently. The history of Europe could be different. 
The history of foreign missions could be different. Who knows how much changed because of the actions of one man. Another commentator gives us an example of, on the other side, there was a mob in the South that was demanding free bread. And it was a mob of women. And they were about to overrun shops and to sack a part of town. And Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, stood up and at the right moment said, Ladies, we will not have this. We will have order. I will listen to your requests, but not in this manner. If you are not gone in five minutes, we will open fire. And the crowd dispersed. And a riot was prevented because of the actions of one man in a timely fashion. This is what Nathan does, and this is what we are called to do. Isn't it? Do you think it's any coincidence that you live in the fourth largest metro area in the country? Do you think it's any coincidence that you are a part of this church? Do you think it's any coincidence that we are right now preparing to build a structure that will make us visible in the community? Do you think it's any coincidence that God is raising up ministries in our midst? No. Now, we may not be called to save all of God's kingdom or the world, but we're called to God's duty right here and right now. What we do matters for eternity. And we are called to follow the Lord and to act with decisiveness. And you see what happens when you're decisive? Look at verse 28. Then David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence, and the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, Solomon your son shall be king. Do you see what happens? David becomes now the decisive king. He's no longer an absent king. He's now the decisive king. He is renewed. He is stirred up by thoughts of the kingdom. You see, it's not primarily to be nice to Nathan. It's not to throw a bone to Bathsheba. It's not even because, well, you know, I did promise it to Solomon. No, he says, as the Lord lives who redeemed me, Solomon shall reign. The kingdom gives David energy. He rises up. It's like that picture that we have in the Lord of the Rings of Theoden. Rising up and going from being a decrepit man to riding out into battle. It's like images you may have seen of some sports figure at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Strap it on and act like he's fresh right from the locker room. Rising to the occasion. And so the question then comes to you. What stirs you up for God's kingdom? What makes you passionate? Does the thought of foreign missions thrill your soul and give you energy and a bounce in your step? Does the thought about children who will be learning about the Savior and growing in grace and learning the truth of God's Word, does that give you energy to rise up with a bounce in your step on Sunday morning to teach Sunday school? Does it drive thoughts of sickness and sleep from your mind? Is it perhaps it's personal evangelism in telling others of the old story of the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross? You see, we are called to be stirred up 
by the kingdom of God. Well, this is how God preserves his kingdom. He uses Bathsheba and Nathan and now David to preserve his kingdom. And what happens then? Well, what happens is David, after being divisive, he pronounces that Solomon is the king and they anoint him and they put him on the royal mule. Now, that may seem very odd to those of you that haven't had a chance to look at this before. You think, mule? Shouldn't he be on like one of those Budweiser horses, those big Clydesdales? Come on! How about an elephant like in India? Maybe a giraffe? No! How do you show you're a king? You show you're a king by riding in on the king's mount, a mule. We have another example of this. Some of you are smiling because you know. It's when our Lord Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem. It's not a coincidence that there was a cult there to take him in. It's not a coincidence. These two images go together. And so what happens is the people see this and they rejoice. Look at verse 36. Benaniah, the son of Joadiah, answered the king and he says, Amen. You know, we Presbyterians don't do that too often. You have to kind of imagine. <laughs> David says, Solomon will be king. And all God's people said, Amen. That's exactly what they said. They're excited about it. Ben and I says, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord the King, say so. And may Solomon be even greater because God is with him than you are. Okay. Benaniah is excited. And then Zadok and Nathan and Benaniah and David's personal guard. That's who these Cherethites and Pelophites are. They're David's personal bodyguard. They haven't been co-opted by Adonijah. They all go out and they make Solomon the king. They go to the tabernacle. That's what the tent is. You can imagine the excitement and the bustling. Fifteen minutes ago, everybody's worried about what's going to happen. Is David going to fall over and die? Adonijah's going to be the king. Now there's a triumphal march. Let's go to the tabernacle. Perhaps they're even singing that psalm. I was glad to hear them saying, to the Lord's house, let us go. And so they go and the excitement is just picked up. There's quick action. And notice what else happens here. See, we don't think about this with kingship. They go out there, and in verse 40, And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Do you notice the difference here? You have Adonijah figuring which districts will give him 53%. Playing this guy against that guy. Trying to solidify his claim in every way he can. Trying to work every angle. And then you have Nathan and Bathsheba and David and Solomon. And they just say, this is what God has said, let's do it. And who are the people with? They're with David and Solomon. You see how they follow along? You see how they rejoice? Do you see how they are into it as well? See, that tells us that God doesn't want us to live a very careful life. He doesn't want our church to be an incredibly careful church. He wants us to obey Him and to strike out where He has gone first and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people will be with Him. 
The psalmist says as much. He says, Your people will be willing in the days of their youth. Speaking of their being willing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's even a democratic element here. The people go on rejoicing. That's what happens. And then the second thing that happens is, it may seem obvious, but the party's over. You notice that? Adonijah has this great party going on, this great campaign party. Perhaps you've even seen it when you've watched returns. You know, it's the candidate who expects to win. Or, do you remember that famous incident in basketball, in the NBA, where the team was so sure they were going to win, they bought champagne and they had the balloons, they had everything together and it didn't happen that way? <coughs> That's what happens. The party is over. Look at verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests, they hear the feet, they hear the trumpet, they hear this uproar, and they say, what's going on? And Jonathan comes in and they say, oh, Jonathan will tell us. He's a stand-up guy. That's what it means there when it says a worthy man. He's an Isheth Hayil. He's like Boaz. He's a stand-up guy. Tell us what's going on. Must be good news. And he says, you almost can't get the emphasis of this word. He says, no way. Not in a million years. You're not going to believe what happened. He's as strongly negative as he can be. And then you notice what he does in verses 43 and 44. He says, David made Solomon king, and Zadok, and Nathan, and Benaniah, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and Zadok, and Nathan. <coughs> He's emphasizing over and over again how everything is flipped around and how active these folks are. And you see what the irony is here? Adonijah's at a, at a feast. He's at his inaugural ball. And he turns around and Solomon's king. This is what the Bible calls being hoist up on your own petard. You see, what Adonijah's plan was to set himself up as king and to present it to Israel is what we call a fait accompli. Nobody can complain about it. It's already done. I'm the presumptive nominee. And now he's in the middle of his... Celebration, and what happens? There's a fait accompli right back on him. Oh, I missed the boat. Solomon's already king. Yikes. <coughs> and it's like all the air has been let out of his balloon. So the party is over. And then the final thing that we see is that the prince reigns. The prince reigns. You see, in verse 48, we read this. We read, And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Again, the Greek version of the scriptures don't just say someone here. They actually say a descendant, an offspring. Now, you don't need that little change to know that this is almost a direct quote of 2 Samuel 7, 12. You see, what David is saying to everybody is, you know how God promised me he'd give me somebody to sit on my throne? There he is. Look how good God is, David is saying. Look how God keeps all his promises. 
You thought it was all over. You thought God couldn't do anything. You thought God couldn't even use an old, cold guy like me. But God always keeps his promises. And the turnabout then from what God has done is nothing short of miraculous. Solomon goes from being the one who is afraid. His mother has to try and preserve his life. He's on the out. He's wondering if he's going to be killed to being in complete control. Do you notice that? Now Adonijah, in verse 51, fears Solomon. And Solomon says, I'll set the terms here. If he'll be a worthy man, then he'll be saved. Now go to your house. You see the difference? Solomon goes from maybe being afraid in his room to saying, go to your room, Adonijah. Come out when I tell you to come out. That's not the act of man. That's the act of God. You see, what we are seeing here is not just coincidence, the right people in the right place at the right time. We're seeing the invisible, hidden hand of God in the actions of Zadok, in the actions of Benaniah, in the actions of Nathan, in the actions of Bathsheba, in the actions of Solomon, in the actions of David. And God preserves his kingdom from total disaster. So the question then comes to you. Do you feel sometimes like you're too small in the picture? Maybe Bathsheba felt that way. Maybe Zadok felt that way. Maybe Nathan did. He's not the popular prophet anymore. But you see, God used them to bring about unbelievable results. In the same way, God can use you and you and you and you and me to bring about miraculous results. <coughs> this is how God acts in history. He uses people to bring about His will and to fulfill His promises, for they will never fail, no matter what the circumstances look like. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we, we come before You this morning thanking You for this glimpse into your actions. We ask that you would encourage us, likewise, Lord, to act, to build up your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now hear the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.